This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Effectively, governance has stopped. The president who is leaving at the end of May, regardless, doesn't seem concerned about what is happening around the country and things are just on autopilot. That's Cheta Nwanze, lead partner at SBM Intelligence in Lagos on how Nigeria is sliding into ever greater instability. Details coming up also. A report in South Africa says basic literacy among kids has dropped since the start of COVID. And the African Union is preparing a national reconciliation conference for Libya to help restore stability. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Barry Andrews, the head of the European Union Poll Observer Team in Nigeria, says it is monitoring all election-related activities leading up to Saturday's vote for president, the Senate, and House of Representatives. Andrews is an Irish politician who serves as Member of Parliament for the Dublin constituency. His remark follows meetings with stakeholders, including representatives of the Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, civil society groups, political parties and other and their candidates, and the media. The European Union says some of the reasons for monitoring elections include showing support for democracy, offering accurate and impartial assessments, increasing transparency and accountability, and enhancing voter confidence in the election process. VOA's Peter Cloti, on a special assignment to the Nigeria elections, caught up with Andrews and began by asking about the organization's mandate. But we've had a team on the ground since early January, uh, a core team of experts, and we've also deployed long-term observers across the country since late January. And we will stay all the way through to the governorship elections in March and beyond. So what we will do is we'll do a preliminary statement two days after the election and a press conference, and we will give our opinion about the impartiality, uh, the credibility, the transparency uh, of this election. What has been the expectations of the poll observer mission? Well, we've a tried and tested methodology, which we've applied uh, not just in the previous elections here in Nigeria, but across the world. Uh, we don't make any conclusions until the preliminary statement, which comes out two days after the election uh, on February the 27th. Um, so in the meantime, we are gathering evidence, we are gathering data, we are cross-checking that evidence and data, which will feed into the preliminary statement um, just after the election. We'll also cross-check with other election observation missions from the African Union, from ECOWAS, from the United States, from the United Kingdom, the Commonwealth. So there are a network of uh, election observation missions here, and we'll make sure that we work together. Now, you talked about partnership with INEC, the Independent National Electoral Commission. Um, what assurances they, did they give you when you met them uh, that the elections will be organized and administered in a free, fair, transparent and credible manner? Well, we've had engagement with a whole range of stakeholders, political participants, the Electoral Commission, CSOs, media, and we have gathered evidence. At this time, we can't draw any conclusions because we'll have to 
triangulate that evidence. We'll have to cross-check it against the data we're able to gather in the field. But we've had an excellent uh, engagement with the Electoral Commission. Um, INEC are under uh, tremendous pressure. They're facing huge challenges. Um, and there are new technologies being brought in. We, as an election observation mission, have for the first time election technology experts. And so the reforms that have come through the Electoral Act and the changes affected by INEC are things that we will be able to map to the greatest extent possible, uh, feeding into the final report and the recommendations. So immediately after the election, we will do a preliminary statement. And within three months after the election, we will present a final report uh, which will contain recommendations for the future. What about the civil society organizations? You know, usually they're always making noise. They're being critical of the uh, INEC, they, they're talking about uh, new ways they think INEC uh, should organize the elections to ensure transparency and credibility. And what about the political parties? Because you know they've been campaigning so hard to win the hearts and minds of supporters to vote for them. Well, what are your views when you interacted with them? First of all, on civil society, we met with uh, groups uh, because we consider the inclusivity of the election. We look at the transparency. And these will be anxieties expressed by civil society. So we look at the role of, you know, whether it's possible for people with a disability to access polling stations, to get polar uh, PVCs, um, uh, to, to understand where polling units are. And this is also relevant, of course, for internally displaced persons. Uh, so their representatives have given us evidence which we can then add into the kind of assessments that we're making. Um, uh, as regards the political parties, again, they've been extremely open to requests for meetings. Uh, since I was here with the launch of the mission in late January, I've had the opportunity to meet um, some of the top presidential candidates, but also we've met other officials, other ministers. Uh, we've, we've met with the Court of Appeal. So we've had absolutely fantastic access. That was uh, Barry Andrews, the head of the European Union Poll Observer Team in Nigeria, speaking with VOA's Peter Cloti. As reported, Nigeria goes to the poll Saturday in one of its most significant elections since the end of military rule almost 25 years ago. Analysts say Africa's biggest economy and most populous nation has enormous potential, but it is being dragged down by underdevelopment, extreme poverty and insecurity. Darren Taylor reports. Police statistics show thousands of Nigerians have been killed by extremists, cults and criminal gangs in the past three years. Insecurity is at a level that we've not seen ever, even during the civil war. The civil war was... Um, Cheta Nwanze is lead partner at SBM Intelligence in Lagos. It does economic and risk analysis for companies wanting to invest in Nigeria. Nwanze says the country's sliding into ever greater instability. We have the Nigerian army deployed in 36 of the country's 36 states. As a result of that insecurity, a lot of other things are not functioning as they should. Inflation is very high levels, north of 20%. Food inflation, which is the biggest component of inflation, is in real times approaching 30%. We believe, as we have intelligence, we feel that youth unemployment is now north of 50%, and um, real unemployment for the whole country is north of 40%. For a long time, says Nwanze, the Nigerian government has failed to deliver basic services like reliable electricity and water to most of its 220 million citizens.
effectively governance has stopped. The president who is leaving at the end of May, regardless, doesn't seem concerned about what is happening around the country and things are just on autopilot. Politicking has taken over in full at least since September. He points out that fuel's often scarce in Nigeria, even though it's one of the world's leading oil producers. Add to this the current cash shortage, which has left many Nigerians unable to draw savings from banks. And Nwanze says many citizens are questioning why the APC deserves another chance in government. Chatham House Fellow and the U.S. government's former top intelligence analyst on Nigeria, Matthew Page, says many of the country's problems are self-inflicted. Nigeria now is very much trapped in a problematic cycle of high inflation, currency devaluation and manipulation, wasteful spending, and irresponsible borrowing. Now, while Nigeria's debt-to-GDP ratio remains relatively low, at the same time, its debt-servicing costs are incredibly high. So, for example, in its 2023 budget, debt-servicing costs will account for 30% of the government's budget. He says Nigeria's always been powered by petroleum revenues and as such has had to manage a boom-bust cycle. Times when, oil pre- times when oil prices were high, increasing its revenue, and times when oil prices were low, decreasing its income. But what we're caught in now, unfortunately, is what I've termed sort of a bust-bust cycle. Because of high production costs, oil theft and import dependency, Nigeria's bottom line suffers both when oil prices are too high and when they're too low. And there's no real sweet spot, sort of Goldilocks zone, where Nigerian public finances are boosted like they once were. This, says Page, is largely because the oil sector's mismanaged, just as Nigeria's massive security apparatus is misused. It's caught in cycles in terms of corruption and gross human rights violations that undermine its capacity to secure Nigeria. And of course, as we know, the army has become far too involved in providing internal security functions that really should be the responsibility of the police. Analysts say as much as this election's different in that a third party candidate could break the grip of Nigeria's big two parties for the first time, it's also the same as previous polls, characterized by the same hope that maybe this time, whatever the outcome, life will improve in the West African powerhouse. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. And in more news from Nigeria, authorities say at least eight people. Eight police officers have been killed over the past few days in southeastern Nigeria, raising concerns about the government's ability to conduct elections Saturday. The Associated Press says four officers were killed in an attack at a station in Anambra State yesterday and four others killed over the weekend. A local police spokesman said the assailants opened fire on officers while detonating explosives. He said three of the attackers were killed and two arrested. The police blamed the attacks on the separatist group, the indigenous people of Biafra, which wants independence for the southeastern region of Nigeria. The country's Independent National Election Commission says it may not be able to deploy to some polling stations because of security concerns. Cameroon's military says 
It has killed scores of armed separatists in clashes this month, and at least 15 have surrendered. The rebels, who vowed to disrupt March Senate elections in Cameroon's western regions, claim to have killed scores of government troops. Mokirwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. The district residents in Cameroon's restive northwest region say seven bodies were found in bushes Tuesday morning following heavy fighting between separatist rebels and government troops. The businessman Anyam Edison Penn says the clashes halted trade in Gokitunja when Dop is located. He spoke to VOA from Dop via a messaging app. For the past weeks, fighting in Gokitunja has been very, very intensive between the separatists and the defense forces. And this has been affecting so many lives, so many persons killed. And it has been a burden on our side. Thousands of people were like they were in the kitch. I pray and hope that that is resolved so that we, the civilians, should not be suffering like this. Cameroon's Anglophone separatists have vowed to disrupt the March 12 elections for Senate and last month killed two election officials. Cameroon's government says at least 15 rebel fighters were killed in ongoing clashes this month around Dop while the military says it killed at least 30 rebels in other northern towns. Cameroon's highest-ranking official in the area, Henderson Ketong Konge, says military raids Monday night targeted at least five separatist camps. Capo Daniel is a spokesman and self-proclaimed deputy defense chief for one rebel group, the Ambazona Defense Forces. Daniel says both separatists and government troops sustained casualties in this month's clashes. We have killed over 38 Cameroon military men since Pobia announced the elections. We have authorized our forces to carry out attack on critical infrastructure. Our recruitments are high, our spirits are high, and we will continue to attack the Cameroon military. We have called for appropriate punishment for those who violate this ban against the election. Cameroon's military acknowledged it took casualties in the fighting, but would not give any figures and has not responded to requests for comment. Despite the threats and ongoing clashes, Cameroon officials say election preparations will continue. The military says about 15 rebels surrendered and were handed to Cameroon's Center for Disarmament, Demobilization and Reintegration, DDR. DDR Country Director Francis Fayengo says one of the rebels who surrendered was a self-proclaimed general. Yango spoke Monday to state broadcaster Cameroon Radio Television. The DDR centers are functioning normally and are open to receive any numbers of ex-fighters at any time. We continue to call on those misguided youths that are still in the bush, that are still reluctant to come out, to forget about the past and seize the opportunity President Paul Bia has offered to come out of the bushes and to make sure that this adventure which they undertook never repeats itself again in our country. Yango says the DDR centers offer social and job skills training to help former rebel fighters reintegrate. The separatist conflict broke out in 2016 when Anglophone Cameroonians protested discrimination by the Francophone majority. Cameroon's military responded with a crackdown and rebels took up arms with the aim of carving out an independent state they call Ambazonia. The UN says fighting has since killed at least 
3,500 people and displaced 750,000. Canada, which is attempting to negotiate an end to the conflict, says more than 6,000 people have been killed and the unrest has deprived 600,000 children of education. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Uhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. A new report by Human Rights Watch says authorities across the Middle East and North Africa are targeting lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people based on their online activity. They are being entrapped on social media and dating applications and subjected to extortion, harassment, outing, arbitrary detention, and torture. The report says digital platforms have become tools for state-sponsored repression and violations of privacy rights in Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, and Tunisia. In some cases, security forces placed fake profiles on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media to impersonate LGBTQ people in order to entrap or extort them. In many cases, the detainees faced numerous due process violations, including the confiscation of phones, denial of access to a lawyer, and forced confessions, as well as verbal and physical attacks. Transgender women were often held in men's cells where they faced sexual assault. A new report in South Africa says basic literacy among young children has dropped since the start of COVID-19 pandemic. Despite government vows to improve reading, the report says more than 30% of South African children entering grade 2 do not know the alphabet and the majority of grade 4 students struggle with basic reading comprehension. Some private schools are working hard to reverse the trend, as Jan Bordeman reports from Johannesburg. A new report by a member of South Africa's 2030 reading panel found that the number of grade 4 learners who lack good reading comprehension skills has increased to 82%, up from an already high level of 78% seven years ago. To counter this, some private schools are spending up to 25% more time on reading and comprehension. Wahida Talbert Mbata is the principal at Hololo Academy. We've had students from both government schools, private schools, your formal model C schools, and the constant is that when those students come into our learning environment, almost none of them are able to read, not even blend words. So we have to go back and we have to teach our second graders, our sixth graders, sometimes even eighth graders, how to blend. Um, and so that's really complicated because eighth graders are supposed to be able to read Harry Potter fluently. The Academy's principal for early primary grades says parent involvement is key. If there's a need for the parent to come and get strategies from the school, they then um, make an appointment to come and meet with the teacher. That this, that's the support that they get um, from the school. Nick Spall is an associate professor of economics at Stellenbosch University and the author of the reading panel report. He says the South African government needs a plan, a budget and more. 
At the moment, there is no national plan for reading. There's no reading plan for the whole country and there isn't a budget. So if you don't have a budget and you don't have a plan, you're not going to see any progress. And the big problem in South Africa is we lack the political will to actually tackle this problem. Officials with the country's Department of Education have acknowledged shortcomings, but add school participation and completion rates have improved over the last 20 years. Officials like Stephen Taylor of the Basic Education Department note the problem is not limited to South Africa. So we participate in something called the Southern and East African Consortium for Monitoring Education Quality. This is uh, an international assessment of reading and of maths at the grade six level that's done across 14 Southern and East African countries. And, and that shows that South Africa is not unique in having a reading challenge. We are actually slightly above average in the region. Education officials say more high schoolers are graduating and say that shows the country's education system is making incremental progress. Jan Bormann for VOA News, Johannesburg. The Commission Chief of the African Union, Musa Faki Mahamat, says the organization is preparing a national reconciliation conference for Libya to help restore stability in the country. Faki says the Libyans must talk to each other as precondition to elections. U.S. Special Envoy to Libya, Richard Norland, has been increasingly involved in efforts to encourage Libyan rivals to reach a political solution, meeting with all parties and calling on them to resolve the political impasse and promote reconciliation, equitable distribution of resources and the formation of a joint military unit. He spoke with VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi at the 5th annual conference of council on Libyan-American relations. You know, we've been attending this uh, gathering of the National Council on U.S.-Libya relations on the eve of the anniversary of the February Revolution. And I think the message that comes out of here is that the United States, um, not only is the U.S. government engaged in efforts to try to produce a solution in Libya, but increasingly civil society in the United States, including the Libyan-American diaspora, uh, wants to do what it can to help produce such a solution. Um, This is important not only for Libya and for Libyans, but it's important for the region. It tells you something, for example, that the African Union uh, meeting in Addis Ababa at summit level this week, Libya is on the agenda there. And uh, the situation in Libya has repercussions throughout the region, throughout the Mediterranean, throughout Africa. And we're focused on the fact that the UN Special Representative, Mr. Batili, uh, has uh, engaged in an intensive effort to develop a roadmap that could uh, help Libyans have confidence that uh, they can come out of this situation peacefully. And we intend to support him in his efforts fully. Can there be a more active role for the U.S. in Libya? Well, uh, we believe that we have been playing an active role. Uh, we've been uh, putting particular focus on the economic dimension uh, through the Economic Working Group because managing Libya's oil resources, uh, the incredible amount of money they're bringing in every day in a way that helps the Libyan people and that reduces tensions, uh, that gives uh, each side confidence that money is not being misused. Uh, this is something that can help stabilize the situation. Uh, We've been supporting the UN in its efforts to develop a a political uh, path forward. Uh, We've taken part in international gatherings to try to align uh, all of the key uh, actors uh, in support of a political process. So 
um, I, I think our view is, uh, especially given the fact that the United States recognizes that uh, we had a role, unfortunately, in uh, generating some of the turmoil uh, that has produced 10 years of, of trouble. And uh, we feel very much that it's important that we contribute to a solution. Stephanie Williams said that there is need, a crucial need, to get Egypt and Turkey to talk to each other about the solution in Libya. Is the United States willing and ready to push the two countries to talk about that? Well, we have uh, excellent bilateral conversations with both countries uh, on, on many subjects, including Libya, and uh, Egypt and Lib uh, Turkey both take part in uh, a number of international gatherings that have taken place with us at the table, with the UN at the table, and that process will continue. That was U.S. Special Envoy to Libya, Richard Norland, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Bob Bass, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>